Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Conversations on Dance is proud to have Yumiko as a continued partner in 2021. Yumiko is a company inspired by beauty and standards. They take great pride in their impact as a socially and environmentally conscious brand. In this new year, Yumiko is more committed than ever to promoting transparency and sustainability in their business practices, while staying devoted to eco-friendly production practices that will contribute to the longevity of a healthy globe. Yumiko is passionately focused on connecting and lifting our dance community to promote a more loving and equal world through the power of togetherness. The New York City flagship store is open to customers with limited hours, or you can shop online at yumiko.com. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Yumiko to stay updated on new releases, live events, store updates, and all things 2021. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are pleased to bring you a special behind-the-scenes look at some of the works and process creations that have been happening safely throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we are joined by Efrat Asheri, New York City-based B-Girl, and Duke Dang, General Manager of Works and Process. We hear about Efrat's career and her recent work developed at the Works and Process bubble residency called Underscored. Duke offers us an inside view into the arts administration side of this pandemic and how he and his team worked to get dancers and choreographers back to creating. A four-part docuseries called Isolation to Creation follows the path of artists who participated in bubble residencies this summer as a part of works and process, including EFRAT. The series will stream nationwide on January 27th, 2021 and February 3rd, 10th, and 17th, all at 8 p.m. Eastern. Access is free on the All Arts app, available at allarts.org. 
and also will air in the New York metro area on the All Arts TV channel. You won't want to miss this fascinating look at how dance persevered during this monumental moment in history. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, it's so nice to have like a mini panel, virtual panel here going on. Um, so let's just start the way we always do um, with the frat, um, getting into how you first became interested in dance in general. Oh, that question. <laughs> it's our favorite. I'm going to make this a short answer. Well, um, I would say, hmm. So I grew up in the 90s and I really was just like a hip hop head. Uh-huh. Um, and I used to listen to, you know, the popular songs of the time on the radio that in the 90s was considered golden era hip hop. Mm-hmm. Really great music. And I was always dancing with my friends and uh, watching music videos. And so, um, you know, we were trading mixtapes and stuff. So that was kind of like my introduction to sort of social dance and mm-hmm. dancing for fun. And then I also grew up with four brothers. And I wanted to be them growing up and I played (laughs) soccer growing up, but I was one, you know, I'm the youngest of five kids and I have four older brothers. So my mom, I think at one point, she still takes ballet class to this day. She's 75. Um, Why don't you try some ballet? And I was like, oh, I roll. Um, (laughs) But I did it. I did it. I started like I started taking class, I think when I was 10 and I really initially didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But then when we got into jumping and turning, I really liked it because it felt really athletic and kind of congruent with my, you know, like sort of competitive nature with my brothers. And so I was dancing socially, you know, with my friends. And then I was taking some some ballet class sort of in the beginning to appease my mom, I guess, um, and to kind of offset the fact that I was always at soccer practice. And then I started to love it and yeah. on those trajectories um, until, of course, things shifted when I was older and I really got into breaking and that's a whole mm-hmm. part of the story. Tell us about that part of the story. How did you make that extreme shift from something so structured into something different? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I get that question a lot like, oh, um, yes, the shift from something that seems so structured to something that seems so unstructured. However, there is so much uh, structure inside of the form of breaking because it is so physically demanding. So although, you know, I wasn't learning it in a classroom at all. Um, shout out to my mentor, Richard Santiago, a.k.a. Break Easy, who used to have his free practices in Bushwick. You know, uh, pre-pandemic, they were still going on. Um, and I had a friend who just took me there when um, and I was telling her that I was looking for this breaking practice. I had actually seen Rennie Harris Pure Movement perform at ADF. And I was super blown away because it really combined all the things I was passionate about in life, which was, of course, hip hop and then the theater, because at that point I had been dancing and performing and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And then I just was kind of like, oh, my goodness, why why am I not breaking right now? And it was also the first time I had seen a woman uh, breaking live, like not on a music video, Lady Jules, shout out to Lady Jules. Um, so I think when I got to to that breaking practice, one of the things that I was so drawn in by um, was how rigorous it was. You couldn't be good at it unless you worked your booty off. Mm -hmm. And that's not very different than like, you know, taking bar every day and just making, you know, keeping your body like together in this really physically demanding way. And also I think I 
related to sort of the competitive nature of it um, and the athleticism of it and um, and how it was connected to everything I loved, uh, even musically, because all the stuff we were listening to was from the 70s, like funk from the 70s, mm-hmm. which was sampled by hip hop in the 90s, which right. music yeah. I grew up on. So there were all these kind of connected things um, to my life. And yeah, so there was rigor and structure, of course, that rigor and structure is used for you to freestyle, is used for you to improvise, right? So the idea that you get all this technique behind you and all this foundation behind your movement, mm-hmm. and then you can go off, right? And you can get really free and crazy. So um, so yeah, it kind of depends. How do you think about structure? How do you think about rigor, right? right. But there was definitely that, all of that for me to sing. Right. Um, what does that sort of practice look like? Like in, in ballet, we're thinking of, you know, you take a bar and then you take a class and then you, you know, you do hours and hours of rehearsal, but for breaking, what does that mean? Like you have to rehearse, you have to work for hours, but what is that going to look like? Yeah. And I mean, everything of course now is shifting in this pandemic life. But Mm -hmm. when I, I mean, when I was in the height of like going to these practices, um, it was sort of, it was a daily thing, first mm-hmm. of all, that, and I remember even one time it was snowing, like schools had been <laughs> closed, like there was no public school, but for some reason I didn't, it didn't occur to me that there may not be a breaking practice right. that day, even though there were two feet, of, two feet of snow on the ground, and I got <laughs> on the train from Harlem to Brooklyn, and I walked to this community center called the Bushwick Highland Community Center. And of course, it was pitch black. Like, nobody was there. It was mm-hmm. a snow day. But that's sort of the, I think... <laughs> that's the mentality. Like, yeah, when you get into that single-mindedness, single-minded focus of, like, training, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's really... In, I mean, everybody has a different methods, but for me, it was like, especially in the beginning, learning a lot of the foundation and drilling it over and over again to then create new transitions between movements and understand how to express yourself through that. And I think in any, like in any style, you go through your phase where you kind of just dance like your mentor mm-hmm. or the people around you, right? And yeah. you're trying to get into the form. You're trying to understand how does my body deal with all like the, these kinds of weight shifts and spinning and being upside down, you know? So you have that whole growth period that I think is very, it's like anything you're getting so deeply into, you have that moment of reckoning of like, how am I connecting to all these things? Mm-hmm. But all those things that you're connecting to, those foundational pieces take so much time to learn. Right. To, uh, to achieve a level of skill with, with which you can then express yourself, right? Yeah, like, uh, I, I love no, I love what you're saying. I think that's so interesting. I feel like we kind of touch have touched upon that in other ways. Like we'll we'll talk with people and they'll be like, oh, you know, I idolize this person. But when you said that we are basically just imitating our mentors until we find our own voice, I've never really thought about it in exactly those terms. And that I think I that crosses all forms of dance. That makes total sense. Totally. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, and I think it's also um something that I think about too. Because breaking is one part of sort of my um, immersion into, you know, Black and Latinx vernacular forms in mm-hmm. in this very kind of uh, in-depth way in terms of training. But another part of that is, you know, starting to go out to like underground dance clubs and specifically like house music, mm-hmm. underground mm-hmm. dance and house in New York City. When we talk about the underground scene, those two words are used kind of interchangeably. It's interchangeably. Mm-hmm history around that. Um, but I realized how much also movement was passed on to me in this embodied way by just dancing with people at the club for hours. And that is also a form of imitation because 
you're vibing with them. So you don't call it imitation because you're, but right. you're receiving the energy and then you're giving it back. And so all of this information is being exchanged. And, you know, I think about with what's going on now where we really can't gather. And I worry about younger dancers who are missing out on that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I like yearn for that, for the community, for everyone to be back together and for younger dancers to get to experience that. Cause that really shaped me as well. Like mm-hmm. being at parties every week or multiple times a week, you know, or certain parties that were monthly parties that I would go to all the time, like the variation of people that I was getting to dance with and exchange with and grow from, and in a way reflecting off of them, right? So that whole thing, I feel like is part of it. And and it's, it's why dance is this really embodied form where you absorb information in this really unique way. And that's why we are, you know, having the difficult time that we are having now because we right. can't have that. Right. So, um, yeah, just There's so right. many through lines with what we want to talk to you about your newest project. And we want to talk about what you're doing with works in process at the Guggenheim. So let's bring, um, Duke and tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in works in process and, um, about your role within the organization. Yeah, I've been with Works in Process for uh, 17, almost 18 years now. And I started as an intern um, between my junior and senior year of college. Um, And the summer before that, I had interned at the Getty Museum in California in their performing arts program. And uh, when I applied to the Guggenheim, they said, we have just the perfect place for you. So I really fell into this um, niche of performing arts in museums. And uh, I studied art history. Um, Subsequently, I did my master's at NYU in performing arts administration. Um, I've never practiced as an artist. um, And I've always appreciated art and artists um, and the works that they create. But I've always seen it as what I do best as an arts administrator make it possible for artists to do what they do best and what artists do best make it possible for me to do what I do best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit um, about how um, works and process has been altered because of COVID? I mean, every organization and especially arts organization has been affected deeply, but what was the process like for you guys to say, we still need to be creating, we still need to be um participating in this form, but we have to do it within these new confines now. Yeah. You know, when the pandemic hit, we really looked deeply into what our mission is as an organization. And it's very clear. It's actually even in the name of our organization, Works and Process. We support Mm -hmm. the creative process of artists and we present the creative process of artists. And when we realized that presenting in-person with live audience was not possible, we said, that's okay. Mm -hmm. We can still continue to support the creative process of artists and how do we do this? So immediately in March, we said, we can commission new works. That's something that we've always done. And we can financially and creatively support artists through our virtual commissions program. And uh, so by April, we started to premiere new works um, and um, now it's January and uh, we've premiered over 80 virtual commissions, but we knew that that was just not enough. And we were hearing from artists like Efrat uh, that they were yearning to be back together again. And that's when we said, how do we do this? And we were brainstorming and um, and I'm I'm very fortunate in that I've been uh, up in the Hudson Valley um, where my, and uh, 
I just felt very safe up here. The infection mm-hmm. rates were very low in April and May. And I was looking at the residency programs that are very close to where I live. And all these residency programs were sitting empty. Catbon, mm. Petronio, Mount Tremper Arts. And I said, what if we brought artists together and had them in complete isolation in these residency centers? They're all on over 150 acres. So by nature of what they are, you could isolate artists. So it was just how do we make that possible? Mm-hmm. And so I was put in touch uh, with Dr. Wendy Zychek by um, a friend um, uh, and, and, and colleague um, named Nikki atkin who runs American Dance Machine. And she said, you should get in touch with Wendy Zychek. She's the former medical director for the Rockettes. Um, she understands what's happening on the medical side, but she also understands the needs of dancers. And it was Dr. Zychek that said, you know, we could probably serially test artists and have them quarantine before going into these bubbles, these residencies in upstate New York. So we were able to get our hands on Tyler Perry's protocol because at that point he was starting to plan a bubble in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And Tyler Perry was like, charter a private jet for, you know, (laughs) and we're like on a nonprofit budget. We cannot do that. But we said, but we can charter a private bus. You know, Tyler Perry was like, um, you know, the driver will be tested. And we're like, well, we could test the driver. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and Tyler Perry was like, and, you know, it will be on a locked down campus. And we're like, well, we have all these residencies in, in upstate New York. So we just started to like right. figure out how do we copy the Tyler Perry model with the resources that are available to us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were, and, and Dr. Zychek was able to connect us with rapid testing, which in June, in May and June was like impossible to, right. to get. And uh, so we had the model in place and then we just at a moment we said ethically is this the correct thing to do when so many artists have faced cancellations they don't know where their next fees are coming from and for us as an organization to offer artists fees at a moment where they were very vulnerable we just wanted to make sure that it was ethically the right thing to do and Mm -hmm. so we um, connected with dr robert klitzman who is the head of columbia university's bioethics program and laid out the equation and said is it appropriate to ask artists to quarantine and to rapid test and to then enter a bubble and live and work together? And he said, ethically, you're, you're doing everything in your power to create a safe environment. We even um, have assist artists with enrolling in individual health insurance and we pay for their individual health insurance. Um, you know, So he said, you're doing everything that you can to ensure their safety. Go for it. And so um, we had all these conversations around June 10th and the NBA announced their bubble protocol on June 14th. And we were like, <laughs> okay, we're all like kind of on the same page the same here. Page. Mm-hmm. The Works and Process Board approved the whole plan and, and, the, and the resources to make it happen on uh, uh, June 23rd, June 24th. And that was when we said, okay, let's make it happen. And by um, August, we had our first bubbles going into... Um, Cat's bond and creating and working again. 
Um, and sub and over the summer and fall, we had eight different projects um, at Mount Tremper Arts, Petronio Residency Center, and Cat's Bond. And um, so it was just our mission of how do we continue to create uh, support the creative process um, despite the headwinds that we faced because that was right. responding to artists, hearing from artists that all they wanted was to be able to gather and create in a safe way mm -hmm. again. Right. I want to hear from Afrat, like what her, um, what your opinion is about this setup, like from the artist side, what was this like for you to find out that these bubble residencies were happening and that you were going to have a chance to work and create again? Magical. <laughs> it, was, it was such a relief to know that we had something to look forward to where we knew that we could be together safely to mm -hmm. create, to dance together, to hug each other, uh -huh. to like just even just socialize to make meals together, you know, like we were going right. to be able to be the way we are with each other, which is the thing that fuels our creative spirits, right. To be able to reconnect to that, to reignite that after so many months, you know, I mean, I think I, we, we tried our best, you know, we, even early on, um, we did a like Zoom works and process showing with, you know, with Duke. And that was exciting because it kind of was like showing how, be, how we've been working virtually. And of course, we were staying connected, right? Like we, mm -hmm. for our for our mental health, for our spiritual health, for our artistic health, right? We needed to stay connected even virtually, especially with everything going on, right? Um, after the murder of George Floyd, we were sharing resources. We were constantly in conversation. We were out in the street. Like there was a lot of ways that we were remaining connected, right? As a mm -hmm. company and beings and as artists, but we weren't able to be together and stay connected and create in the way we are so accustomed to. And so knowing we were gonna be able to do that, that I think from the day we found out we were gonna actually be able to be at Katwan together, something shifted in all of mm -hmm. it. was like a relief. There was like, okay, we have this thing. And then, you know, and then of course um, it was, yeah, it was like, I mean, the sense of like, are we ever going to, I mean, we may never hopefully have to experience something like this again. So like the, even all the details around how to quarantine and the rapid mm -hmm. testing, you know, we were very aware of how historic and how important this opportunity was for us. Um, so, yeah. Just was, for for our listeners, I feel like it's very important for them to know since they can't see you that when you're talking about this, you're like beaming with oh, happiness yeah. <laughs> over how amazing this experience was. I'm sure it was it was just so refreshing. But I also wonder, Duke, like for once, maybe ever, you had almost and you could have had any dancer, any artist, any choreographer you oh, wanted right. almost because everybody was really available and everybody was right. looking for this. So how did you decide who was going to be involved in these um bubble residencies. Yep. It was a very easy decision for us because we were committed to four projects already that we mm. just needed to follow through on. You know, when we were looking around and we were seeing widespread cancellations, we just said, we are not canceling on any artists. That is not in our vocabulary. We are going to find a way forward. And so with Efrat's project underscore, we had already started the creative process and commissioned this project in, I think it was early 19. We had set up a residency summer of 19. We had done a showing in January of 20, and we were going to premiere it in fall of 20. And we said, well, you know, we don't know if we can premiere it, but we are still going to be able to make it possible 
for this project to continue. And mm-hmm. the exciting thing is these bubble residencies, they are bubbled, they are isolated, but that doesn't mean that they have a rippling effect. They have such an incredible generative effect. First off, at Catspawn, you know, after Works in Process put these bubble residencies in place, Catspawn said, we'd like to have a festival and we'd like, and we have permission from the local municipality to have live audiences in this outdoor performance. And so four of the nine weekends of performances at Catspawn actually featured Works in Process bubble commissions. And mm-hmm. so we went to Efrat and the other bubbles and said, would you like to perform in front of a live audience? And they were all like, of course, oh my God. for like the first live outdoor performances in the Northeast. Um, you know, it was August. And then we were so naive when in June, when we put this in place, we said, we are going to premiere these works in the rotunda of the Guggenheim on the very last day of the bubbles because all the artists have been double rapid tested. They've been isolated for 14 days. We know that they're safe. And we thought, well, if people are allowed to come into the Guggenheim and stand on the ramps and look at art on the walls, why can't they stand on the ramps and look at performers on the rotunda floor? Well, come September when Efrat exited the bubble, the Guggenheim hadn't even opened yet. And we're like, but there's this opportunity. What do we do? And so fortunately, we were able to partner with Lincoln Center and we were able to sequence all of these bubbles into live filmed performances on the campus of Lincoln Center just to share the work that's being created. And then also we created a docu-series called Isolation to Creation. But um, I have totally gone on a tangent. We, we love, love this tangent. We love a tangent. Set <laughs> <laughs> up if you want. Yes. Or do you want to ask a question? Yeah, I can pick that up by saying how exhilarating it was to be able to be in this process and then create something out of it that you never would have had the opportunity to actually create. So Mm -hmm. although underscored in my mind was already this multifaceted project with a live performance uh, component and an oral history archive through a fellowship with the New York Public Library, Jerome Robbins Dance Division, right? And this like community aspect where we would tour eventually and connect with club dancers in all the cities. I had it envisioned like a short dance film at Lincoln Center Mm -hmm. that really reflected our journey from feeling confined into our little Zoom squares, right? Right. Into like dancing into the fountain, which to me, I mean, it's a short film, right? It's just like two and a half minutes or a little bit less, right? 245, I think. But somehow it is, to me, it really reflects like what we were dealing with in this really, really singular moment. And Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, kudos to you, Duke, and everyone at Works in Process for like figuring out not only how to keep supporting artists, but how to uh, facilitate other creative outlets that may not have happened in another situation. So, um, yeah, so I'm just very, I feel so lucky and happy that that little uh, Lincoln Center moment exists. Right. Oh, but back to your question. How did we select the projects? Four of them we had already commissioned, already were cooking before the pandemic. So we just said, we're going to continue to champion these projects. So they were mm-hmm. Efrat Ashery underscored, uh, which is um, about New York City underground dance um, and the club life. 
the other project was um, Omari Wiles's New York is Burning, which is uh, an homage to the 30th anniversary of Paris is Burning and Ballroom, Vogue, Afrique, um, and the Ballroom family. Um, the other project was Missing Element, which brings together beatbox and street dance. Um, the fourth project uh, we had committed to was Seven Deadly Sins with uh, Sarah Mearns, Josh Burgos, Justin Vivian Bond, Mark Hopple. Uh, that was supposed to be performed at our gala. Our gala was canceled, mm-hmm. and we said we still are going to commit to you because we made that commitment already. And um, then what was great about the virtual commission series was it provided us with these seeds that blossomed into bubble residency. So we had commissioned a piece from Jamar Roberts called Cooped. And we said, this is so incredible. Jamar, what else can we do for you? And he said, all I want is to gather in a studio and create. So we had Mm -hmm. Jamar Roberts in a bubble residency. Um, We had worked with um, Leonardo Sandoval and Gregory Richardson when they were uh, dancing in the rotunda as part of Dorrance Dance's uh, Guggenheim Works in Process Rotunda project. So we provided them with a bubble residency. And the last bubble residency came from, um, was for John Jarbo, who's the founder of the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. And he also had received a virtual commission called Rose. And uh, so we wanted to provide him with an opportunity to continue to explore that. So um, these are all artists that are part of the Works in Process family. They all have performed at Works in Process before the pandemic. And we just said, how do we continue to support these artists Mm -hmm. um, during these times? That's so wonderful. I mean, I've heard stories about lots of many organizations just kind of, you know, threw their hands up and said, well, we'll just wait this out. You know, we'll just sit on whatever endowment we have and then, you know, hope that there's an audience when we come back in 20, late 2021. But I I love that you continue to support artists in general, but particularly those who you, um, who had put something into the organization, you know, you were making sure that you were still managing to feed them. And it's not just about supporting artists. I mean, this is about New York City, I mean, why do people live in New York City? What makes New York City this magical place? It's the creativity. It's the artists. And so if New York City is going to rebound, we have to think, how do we rebuild New York City? And the building blocks of that are the artists. So we we need to support the artists now more than ever at a time when our city is just so decimated. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Efra, can you tell us a little bit, you started to touch on it, but I want to hear a little more in depth about the idea behind this project and really what um, your initial thoughts were for it and how it has since evolved and how you hope it will continue to evolve, especially like in the climate that we're living in right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Underscored is really this multifaceted project that's rooted in these intergenerational uh, conversations, like based in New York City club life, right? And it, uh, the cast members range in age from 25 to 77. So it's the company with uh, a long, and we're very honored to have like legendary elders from the club community uh, as our collaborators. Uh, we revere them, we adore them. And it's uh, it's been amazing to, you know, a, a lot of us, like I know Archie Burnett for almost two decades, uh, but this is the first time we're, uh, working in this capacity together. So it's Archie Burnett, 
uh, Loose Key, Louis Loose Key, uh, Bravo, Brahms LaFortune, and Michelle Saunders, who I actually met through Duke, which is like a very wonderful story. She is a Paradise Garage legend. Um, so yeah, so it, I, um, so it's really these stories um, that happen organically in these, you know, in these sacred spaces, the club mm -hmm. for us that I realized um, have been so important to me, to shaping me as an artist and a human being. And that through my experience touring other work, um, rooted always in, you know, at, in black and Latinx vernacular forms like breaking, like house, like hip hop, like Vogue, I started to realize like, even with all the Q and A's we were doing and the pre-show talks and post-show talks and the explanation of where these forms are really rooted, where, where they come from, why they exist, there was still like some kind of disconnect. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that, you know, I mean, it was always in my mind, like the idea of collaborating, like dancing with your elders is that's how you learn, right? Mm -hmm. That's very common to many Afro-diasporic forms. At the club, you dance with people that are 20 years older than you. It's no big thing. And sometimes you can barely keep up, honestly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, and, and, you know, even working with my crew, Mau, um, you know, it's a collective of eight women, um, a house dance collective. We're always, you know, like we're always in conversation with our elders. So that's very part and parcel of what you like learn as being part of the underground scene. And I thought, gosh, like I'm so lucky to have these opportunities to tour and create work for the stage. And there is this gap. There is this thing that people aren't understanding, right? About where these styles are really from. And a lot of that has to do with, of course, you know, the way that a lot of these vernacular forms are tokenized or marginalized or how black culture is so often commodified, right? And like the erasure of communities of color through just sort of like taking a little part of the history or a little part of the form and putting it on stage in this weird way that's totally uh, diluted, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, that has nothing to do with what I'm about. And everybody in the company is rooted in in the community. And like, part of the challenge of this work is how do we uh, allow the complexities of these forms to uh, be illuminated on stage when now the context has shifted, mm -hmm. right? And so, um you know, and from a choreographic standpoint, that's something I think about all the time. Never am I trying to recreate the club or the street or a battle because that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Those are very sacred spaces that are based in rituals. But that has been the movement language that has inspired me to be an artist. So how do I make sure that I'm honoring that and bringing the fullness and the complexity of that to everything that I do? And part of that is really like, let me foreground these conversations, these conversations that have made me who I am, both in an embodied way and in just in like having a meal with somebody and hearing their stories about how they started dancing and why they kept dancing. Um, you know, and I think the generation of dancers that we're talking about, that we're in conversation with for Underscored, they're part of the generation of dancers that ushered in what is now known as the underground dance community. So they lived through the AIDS epidemic. So that's another thing that like living through this pandemic, how has that experience been for them? So all of these conversations are now part of the work that of course we were gonna, you know, we were addressing the AIDS crisis before and you know, everything that was going on in terms of the LGBTQ plus movement. Um, but now it's foregrounded in a different way because everything is taking away the, the ability for us to congregate and gather and exchange mm -hmm. in this way 
has been taken away, has been stripped. So that's an added layer. What if the club doesn't come back like the way we know it? Some of the elders are wondering, will I get to experience it again the Uh way I have before? You know, it's a lot of like heavy stuff. So, um, and, and interestingly enough too, you know, I always envision like the live performance and oral history and the community engagement stuff, but I'm like, you know, especially with what we did at Lincoln Center, I'm like, yeah, this needs to be on film. You right. know, this this needs to live as some kind of like hybrid documentary slash art film slash dance film because there's just too much information here that is really important to make accessible to as many people. Mm-hmm. And I think most choreographers have been doing that, have been thinking more about how does how does the body, you know, engage with this lens now? And so... Yeah, I mean, it is ever evolving. I don't feel, and and this is this has been really wonderful to feel the consistent support of Duke and everyone at Works in Process. Like, it's not, you know, art is a living and breathing thing. Like, movement keeps growing. Like, the community keeps growing. Like, and shifting, especially in times of peril. Like, we need this more. We need the conversations to keep going, and we need to find ways to keep connecting. And I. I feel like this is what's happening through the bubble residency and through these other ways of imagining, uh, yeah, collaboration and, and creativeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love and I find particularly interesting um, your commitment to, um, you know, uh, sort of getting the oral history out and making these connections with the elders, the people who are responsible for basically um, um, creating and um enlightening a space that it, that has given you your joy, your life's work. Um, and I think it's interesting because uh, I wonder if there is not a concerted effort outside of what you're doing to, to hold on to these histories because they feel recent, you know? It's like you're talking about things from the 70s and 80s and it's like, it, it doesn't feel as um, pressing as something like when you're talking about a ballet history, like, oh, we got to save this ballet from the ballet ruse that's almost gone. You know, is there is there a less of an urgency? And is this why you're you're kind of committing to this idea? No, I mean, I actually feel there's su- such an urgency. I mean, we've lost so many people mm-hmm. in the underground scene um, Two very close mentors to me. Uh, Marjorie Smarth and Buddha Ray that passed when they were very young and and that that kind of underscored the preciousness of this. And uh, I think the pandemic too is further underscoring the preciousness of, of telling the people that have shaped you and that you love how much you love them and how important they've been to you. And so, you know, um, although this was in my head to do this project long before it came to fruition, the urgency has, has been fueled by everything that's going on. Right, right. Um, and also just to think the way that media and technology has shifted from the, you know, if we're looking at like early underground history, we're talking like 1970, right? Like seventies or early, like the loft and the paradise garage. Those are two seminal clubs that really shaped sort of the, the trajectory of underground nightlife in New York. And, you know, there's so few photos from those spaces mm-hmm. that change nightlife. There's so few videos. Like it is so different than the way things are documented now. And um and to be able to hear stories from people that were there at that time, especially for something that's so physical like dancing. 
I think really informs anybody that's part of this community. It really makes you understand, oh, this is why I do what I do. Like, this is why I'm impacted like this. Oh, right. Because that early DJ, David Mancuso, who started The Loft, he was an orphan and he just wanted to figure out how to have a place to gather with his friends and share like the best music on the best sound system with balloons and cake and dancing. Cause that was his sacred space when he was in the orphanage. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, there's way more complexities to that story too, but that idea you're like, yeah, like he really, you know, he really wanted that. And it didn't matter where you were from or who you loved or what you did for your job or what your name was. Like people didn't ex- even exchange their names. It was like, you came to do this other thing and operate on this other vibration. And that is so many parties and so many DJs come from that, right? And that's why we get to experience what we get to experience and that freedom we get to experience, you know? So yes, it feels urgent. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it, the magic of this is that the elders, the people who created, who were there in the very beginning, they're still alive. And so in addition to supporting Underscored, one of another project that works in process is supporting and efforts actually involved is um, Ladies of Hip Hop. And they're in a bubble residency right now that's about to, the intergenerational transfer of information. And so there are three generations of ladies of hip hop in their 50s in their 30s and in their uh, 30s and 40s and in their 20s and they're in a bubble right now and it's this rare chance for these three generations to connect and share these stories and um and uh ever i can probably talk more about it yeah no i really want i'm i'm very fortunate to be serving on the board of ladies of hip-hop which is this incredible organization and it has many kind of parts of it um and i got to teach as part of ladies of hip-hop way on very early in the beginning when it was still operating out of philly um and what's really incredible about what, what michelle bird mcphee is doing um along with everyone that she's collaborating in the organization is really um addressing the er- erasure of black women in the underground community so it's it's, she's like very committed to giving platforms to Black and Latinx women to really share their stories because that is something that doesn't always happen. And we understand, you know, that this is a part of a huge systemic issue, right, um, uh, of systemic racism in this country. So that sort of uh, emphasis and singular focus and the fact that you're supporting that Duke is really important and, um, and it's exciting. And I'm, oh, I mean, that's going to be really powerful just. Um, yeah. It's, it's- and, and, you know, Michelle breaks it down so clearly and I am completely summarizing, but she says, you know, when you think about hip hop culture, often you think about the men, but mm-hmm. at the root of it, it's the women that actually drive it. It's usually the moms that are like, why don't you go take dance lessons? Or it's usually the guys that are like, oh, we're going to the clubs for the girls to be with the girls. <laughs> Yeah. And like even pioneering DJs, it was like their moms who had the records that they were first spinning. Do you know what I mean? Or even like um, the flyers for all these parties that became legendary were designed by women and that, and then they promoted the parties. Like so many ways women are erased from the stories so often. And Michelle is really um, making sure that those stories are illuminated and come to light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I have to wonder, Duke, what it feels like for you to hear all of this and see that you're not works and process isn't just making something for the audience. You guys are clearly contributing to something so important for these artists. And how does that feel for you to be such an integral part of that and giving them this opportunity? You know, it just feels really incredible because I think our niche as an organization is having the process, having the discussion be the destination rather than, oh, we're going to a premiere Mm -hmm. because the learning happens in that process, the learning between the artist, but also the learning between the audience and the artist. And in a time like right now where that premiere performance is not possible, it's And also in a time where we're all still processing what is happening to us in this moment, you know, the process should be the destination. Um, And we're really, really proud to champion these conversations that are so overdue. And the projects that we champion, we really think about, you know, how do we shape representation? How do we be a source of equity, equality? Um, And... um, you know, Works and Process really has expanded our programming. You know, we used to, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was a very uh, Eurocentric um, presenting curatorial lens. And now it's really about, we are in New York and what are the art forms? What are the cultures that make New York this magical place? And, you know, we were so excited when Efrat brought this project to us because what she is working on, what she is championing is authentically New York, made in New York. And um, presenters, um, I think, I mean, as a presenter myself, we need to provide resources for um, for, for these genres. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I think what's great about um, what you've done in the past year is that we are going to get this inside look with isolation to creation. Um, you know, it's a once in a lifetime situation, hopefully fingers crossed. <laughs> it's a once in a lifetime situation, but doesn't mean there is an opportunity in there. So, I mean, you, you've allowed, you've given an opportunity to these artists and now with isolation to creation, we're going to see um, as outsiders, what this process is like. And so, so many people who love art, um, may not be completely tuned into that. So we're going to get to see um, something a little bit deeper than just, you know, showing up and getting to see a, a show or even watching a film, you know. Um, I'm particularly excited about the premiere. It's Wednesday, January 27th. Can you tell us a little bit about this idea, how it came about, and then how um, how you went about um, creating? Yeah, we knew that we were in a historic moment. And we had a conversation with Linda Murray, who's the curator at the Jerome Robbins Dance Division. And early on, she said, when we look at the collection of the Jerome Robbins Dance Division, it's always in a moment of crisis when the artistic creation flourishes. Mm -hmm. You know, you look back to the AIDS crisis, and she's 
immediately said, you know, whatever works and processes commissioning, we want it to be a part of the Jerome Robbins Dance Division collection because they are creating a collection of works that are created right now during the pandemic. And um, so we knew we had to document these bubble residencies and part of it was for historic, for research, but also part of it is that we wanted to share these journeys with a larger audience so that the audience can understand what artists are facing right now, how it feels to, you know, receive cancellation after cancellation after cancellation, to have the floor, you know, pulled out from underneath them and not know what is next. And then to journey back into the studio. And it's not just an emotional journey. It's a physical journey because for these artists, it's like the first time they're back in a studio after months of isolation. And it's like, how does the body feel? Like, what's that physical journey? <laughs> and and then also, what's the emotional journey? And then also for us, it is about providing hope, you know, which is, which is what is going to heal all of us. Um, and that, you know, there is a way forward, um, you know, just, just, sitting around and doing nothing is is not an option. Complacency is not an option. And um, isn't that what has always been the engine of New York City is innovation, new ideas, and just not taking no for an answer and figuring out how to move forward. And we wanted to tell that story um, through isolation to creation. And how can people watch it? So it will be on WNET's All Arts platform, which uh, you can download the app. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also at allarts.org. And if you live in the New York tri-state region, um, it it will be on TV on uh, All Arts. And uh, it's four episodes. Each episode is 27 minutes long. It will premiere on uh, January 27th, 8 p.m., that's the first episode and every Wednesday after will be a new episode. Awesome. And, and can people watch underscored? I think the film is online. Is that correct? It is online. (laughs) (laughs) You correct me if I'm wrong. They can just go to works and process on YouTube and it's there, right? And yes, it's there. And Lincoln center. And, um, you know, and as Efrat made it very clear, this is just, one component of underscored. It's going to have a very rich, fragmented life <laughs> um, in many iterations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a good thing. And, um, you know, we're really proud that uh, we received um, a significant grant from the Andrew W. w. Mellon Foundation um, to continue these bubble residency programs uh, into 2021. We have 12 bubbles from now until June and um, Underscored will be in one of those bubbles to continue okay. to support this project. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. What are you going to be working on in that part of the the next bubble? What things will you be doing for that? Well, I'm. we're going to be working on sort of a 30-minute version okay. of the work that could be potentially performed as soon as we are allowed to perform it. Mm-hmm knowing that there will be restrictions on length of performances, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Just kind of keeping in mind how much we want to get back to live performance, but also realizing that will be some limitations. So, you know, a little 
uh, underscored COVID version, I suppose. And that's so cool because you're nice. this this work is kind of going through the pandemic, right? It's had this initial version, the idea, and then it's had this short film version, and then it's going to be in a restricted version. Then we're going to have a whole theater filled with people watching it after that. Exactly. exactly. And I think it's also just, um, you know, as artists, I think we like to think of ourselves as malleable, right? And mm -hmm. easily adaptable. Like that's what we do, especially if we're freestyle dancers, we can improvise and, you know, but this is another level of that. Right. right. And I think just kind of, really uh, facing that and saying, okay, like how does my malleability now need to shift in this other way is very humbling, but very important, I think, to the growth of any artist. And I feel I feel excited that I get to be a part of that process right. along with all of the collaborators I'm with. Right. So for a final thought, I want to know from both of you um, what this experience of working during COVID and having to to be adaptable, um, what you hope to take from it, e even when we are quote unquote back to normal, what what positive things are you gonna take and move forward for each of your respective roles within the arts community? So let's start with uh, Duke. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're like, I'm gonna go second. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's such a cliche, but I think that, you know, where there, you, it's about what is your mission? And if there's a will, there's a way to achieve that mission. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to bring in the right experts to provide you with the right guidance and, um, you know, the, the, the right idea. Right. I love it. What about you? Um, well, <laughs> I'm never going to leave a party early again. <laughs> <laughs> As soon as we're back, <laughs> end of every party. No, amazing. Um, to just really um, cherish uh, the preciousness of being together. Mm -hmm. You know, whether on in the studio, on stage, at a party, um, and that wow, you know, things. Life is ephemeral, and we really don't know what's coming at us next. Mm -hmm. And you know, some like beautiful things have happened. Even just like the other day, I had a little FaceTime dance with Michelle Saunders and we just, she was like, Oh, I, lo I love this song. And I'm like, me too. And we just danced together. Like, I want that to keep happening. We, we won't always be able to be in the same city with the people that we love. So right. there is understanding the extra precious preciousness of connecting in all these different ways. I hope that doesn't go away mm -hmm. and caring for each other and looking out for each other and supporting each other, which is really what works in process has been doing for so many artists, right? That need, we need to keep, uh, we need to keep doing that. Right. What a lovely note to end on. <laughs> I love Thank that. Thank you both so much for joining us. And, um, we look forward Thank to you. seeing Isolation to Creation and, of course, all that uh, Works in Process and Fred have to offer in 2021. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.